Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Peter Stanford. We're going to be talking about angels and he's the author of the new book Angels, A Visible and Invisible History. And it covers everything from the books of Enoch and Ezekiel to, you know, Robbie Williams and... I don't, don't, Robbie Williams I don't remember books. noticing Peter Stringfellow in there, but... You know, no. another angelologist and yeah, um, possibly. Now, Peter, in in the visible part of this book, at least, there is so much mad stuff, and maddest of all, at least on the face of it, is the opening. I'm you open, you, you open with a survey saying that something like one in yeah. three British people maintain. I don't know how successful this survey is. Maintain that they believe in angels, and that approximately one in ten claim to have seen one. Indeed, there's an even madder. This bit, survey must be bought, surely. They can't. The figures can't be. Well, like the, that. the even madder bit is that seven percent of atheists say they believe in <laughs> angels, which uh, which always seems a bit odd. It's it's a perfectly kind of reputable company who've done them. I don't think it. Well, it, it's mad on. You're right. It's mad on on several levels. It's mad on the level that if you look at most recent opinion polls for people who say they are religious. They come out at about 25% of people will say they're religious. So I think that the, the, the general idea of angels would be that they're somehow linked to God. I mean, obviously in the Old Testament, they're God's messengers, they, they do God's bidding, but always linked to God. So somehow what we've managed to do in this wonderfully successful 21st century of ours is um, detach angels from God. And um, by those measurements in the opinion polls, angels are more popular than God. Which is, which is, which is, well, it's I think it. you have a, you have an expression in the book where you say, surely these people are drawing on capital that doesn't <laughs> exist. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I quite like that line when I wrote it. Uh, he says immodestly. Yes. I mean, it, you're right that it's mad, but I suppose the starting point for the book is to ask why that is. And at the very beginning of the book, I do talk about a few examples. I mean, two people, well, three people who fit those things. One was my own upbringing in that I was brought up Catholic in, uh, in Liverpool, which is a very Catholic place. And guardian angels were just kind of part of life. And so there's a kind of childlikeness about it. And I suppose there's also that kind of link that goes with formal religion or certainly you know, 70s, 80s Catholicism as you're being brought up in that you you just accepted it like you accepted other things. But the people in the survey, of course, aren't all children. But one of the things that has changed is certainly institutional religion, t- religious ties have, have changed. And I suppose that's quite a good way of looking at those particular statistics because I think one of the reasons that angels appeal to people so much is that they give them a, a kind of sense of, well, the title is invisible or uh, invisible and visible. You could talk about physical and metaphysical within and without. I think a lot of us, even if we never go to church, we have a sense that there's kind of more to the world than meets the eye, that there's a, kind of trans- there's a transcendent dimension somewhere that, that, that we kind of sense and we, we can never quite kind of uh, pin down. And angels are a way into that, in a way perhaps that religion, organised religion used to be. But of course, the great advantage of angels if you think again sorry to keep going back to Catholicism but but you know certainly all faiths what they do is they give you a whole set of rules that you have to kind of keep and usually most of the rules are things you don't necessarily want to do um 
Actually, most I'm just I'm wondering whether that's true. Most Catholic <laughs> rules. Most Catholic. I also think most Catholic rules about things you do want to do and they're telling you not to do them. But anyway, <laughs> we, let, let, that's not what we're discussing today. But it's all about kind of rules yeah. and obligations and and being part of a kind of form structure. Angels make no demands at all, particularly the kind of guardian angel, the most popular angel, one one in three people believe in. You, you just have a sense that someone wants someone to watch over me, as the film as the film would go. I think they appeal for that reason. They're a sort of religion light. But if they become detached from religion, is that a valorization of the kind of I think it's Chesterton line about you know if you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. Yes. It's tempting sometimes to think that, and I, as you say, there are, there are, there's a whole a whole lot of of kind of details in there where people get carried away to to quite create extremes. I mean, certainly in in our, in, in societies at the moment, there's a thriving. What's the right word? I was going to say business. It's not a business. It's because people sincerely believe it. Is it a circuit? Uh, but there's certainly a kind of... Angelic industrial complex. Very good, very good. There we are. Uh, you should be a literary editor. Um, uh, so, yes, that does exist. And, uh, you know, I've been to a few of these events. As, again, I talk at the beginning of the book, there's a great mind-body-spirit exhibition at uh, Olympia every May Day bank holiday. And it's, it's full of all sorts of things that I suppose casually we might dismiss as as kind of mad or strange or on the margins. But, you know, I'm a Catholic, that's pretty mad. Yeah. But the idea, the idea that there's something, you know, what we call spiritual, spirituality mm. rather than spiritualism in its mm. kind of old, old format has become a sort of post-religious syncretism that sort of pulled in all these Well, it always was things, there. Yeah. It was always there in religion. And, of course, one of the interesting aspects of the story of angels is that it was always, you know, if you look at the, the, the people within different forms of organised religion who are most drawn to angels, it will be the mystics, so the Sufis in Islam, the Kabbalah in, um, in Judaism... And mystics like um, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, very, very important uh, German 12th century, 12th, 13th, 12th, abbess. That idea of the kind of direct relationship with God, the direct interaction yeah. with God. And I suppose that, of course, that feeds in as well to getting away from the institutions, because what religious institutions have always done is filtered our access to God. Yeah. It has to channel it through them, and they hate the idea that you do it without them. And the, what the mystical tradition has always done, and of course has always been persecuted in, in many ways, or certainly shunned by mainstream um, organised religion is it's given people that kind of access. And I think in some ways the kind of modern-day manifestation of interest in angels is allowing people to explore those areas of spirituality, the idea of a kind of divine cosmos or whatever they wanted to call it, on their own and to do it in, in their own way. Do you think they behave like a, like a meme at all? I mean, that they, they sort of seem, certainly in the, your account of the origins of them, you know, they, they transmit from, you know, book to book and religion to religion. And Yes, they do. And it's, well, I mean, I, I suppose what I think about that is that, 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 they, that there's a kind of universal need there. So in, in, in every society, in every, in every situation, uh, something equating to an angel is seen to have a purpose for some people, which presumably is why 7% of atheists believe in them, despite their very fervent, fervent belief against God. I suppose what the book is if the, well, the book's about all sorts of things, but I suppose one of the things the book is about it's looking at why people have believed in angels, what is it about angels, and then how they've imagined it and how that how that has worked. But it certainly does they they the it the belief they the angels seem to kind of speak to something in people and speak to them through all religions. I mean, clearly there is a process going on there of one religion passing to another. So in very simple terms, you know, we're sitting here in the centre of London 
London, so Western Western European Christian uh, uh, society, you can you can trace a line back from the angels that we're all familiar with on our Christmas cards, back through to the uh, the the Bible, the the New Testament, back through Judaism. It's really Judaism that puts puts names to angels. Well, it's, I was going to say, it, I mean, that story is a really interesting one. Can we sort of yes, I'm doing the go way right around it, wasn't I? I was, yes. I was going to have to go very very long way back. I mean, because the first you you start with yes. Isaiah, who you say yes. kind of I mean even song of angels. Yes, he's not the oldest song in the world. First, I'm of not them. going to sing it. Don't worry. No, <laughs> few. <laughs> um, but you know, you say even though he's he's not obviously the first mention of angels in no. the Bible in order, he's the first biblical text that gives us an angel in a form we'd recognise. Is that fair to say? In, indeed, yes. So the the very first biblical reference to angels is in the book of Genesis, the, the cherubs that are put at the gates of the Garden of Eden to make sure Adam and Eve don't try to get back in. And they have a flaming sword. And then you get, the, in Genesis, you get a whole series of um, of of these very shadowy figures. And the um, the Old Testament is very unclear at that stage. I suppose the famous one is uh, when Abraham, age 95, is sitting under an oak tree at Mamre in the midday sun. And three, first of all, it says three men approach him. And then then they become angels, then they become God. And that happens in various places in Old Testament. Jacob's wrestling with the angel. He's, yes, Jacob, exactly. Angel and then he's God. Then he's God, and sometimes he's a man. And it, 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 it kind of in, it, it interchanges there. So, I mean, there's one, one thing that comes up to that is why do they have, do you think, this status of being, you know, in the, those ancient books of the Bible, being kind of quite sometimes they're an angel and then they turn out to be God or not. Is that because we've been told that you can't look on the face of God and live and therefore, or you know, there's a, rep- yeah. a, a sort of ban on representation and they go, okay, we need to represent the numinous in this story and we kind of want it to be God, but they become a sort of stand-in or a, a mediation. There's absolutely an element of that in, in, in the sense of kind of connecting, connecting kind of human beings with, with, with God. But there is, I think there's also that sense of angels being God's messenger and the, the, the messenger in that sense only being as important as the message. And so if God is the message, then sometimes what tends to happen is they start off as being men. And then, then they become God, as, as in uh, certainly in memory, um, and and often the 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 idea that they're also angels is projected back onto them. So actually, um, as I was saying it, I knew I was getting it wrong, at the Oak at Mamre. So this is the occasion, everyone will know this occasion, because it is the moment when 95-year-old Abraham and 89-year-old Sarah discover the, the, uh, the angel god, the men, tell, tell him and her that they're going to have um, a child. And there's that rather wonderful bit where Sarah laughs, and God, and that's when it absolutely becomes clear this is God. God says, don't you be laughing at that, because, you know, <laughs> look at that bump. It's, you know, it's kind of, so they, these shadowy, slightly indistinct, hard-to-pin-down figures, Figures are very much what goes on in those early books of the Bible. And then, of course, you come to Isaiah, which comes... Um, like Red Bull, he gives them wings. Indeed. <laughs> and you suddenly get this extraordinary construction around, around an angel. So it's all about... What, so what happens in the Old Testament is you are constantly... The angels are constantly accruing more and more more details. And, of course, the, the, you know, the six-winged seraph. You know, why six wings? So you, you can look back to Greece, you can look back to Egypt, you can look back to Canaan civilization. Zoroastrians as well. Zoroastrians are really important. I wish we knew more about I'm, I'm, Someone's going to obviously knows an awful lot about Zoroastrians. <laughs> I wish I knew more about Zoroastrians. So the, the, the big moment going between those 
those early books of the, of, of the Old Testament where angels are shadowy figures. Then you get on to Isaiah, 8th century BCE, and then you come on to the, um, the Babylonian exile. Really, really such, such a kind of key moment in our understanding of angels, obviously quite such a key moment for the Jews as well, where they go, uh, go, go to uh, Babylon, uh, it's 597, isn't it, it begins, and come across Zoroastrianism in all its, in all its kind of glories. And so Zoroastrianism was following the teachings of the prophet Zoroaster, who is thought to have lived between 15,000 BC and 10,000 BC, which is quite a big uh, gap we're giving him there. There's a lot of d- debate around that. And carried on really through to the 6th, 7th century CE or AD, whichever you want to call it, when, when Islam virtually kind of certainly wiped it out of there. But they had a very, very developed religious life. They were dualists. They believed in a good God and a bad God. And the good God was one of a group of seven. He was surrounded by, sometimes they're called um, beneficent spirits or divine spirits, divine sparks, but they were effectively angels. So a lot of these ideas the Jews saw when they were there for uh, 50, 60 years in, in the Babylonian exile. And one of the things they did during the Babylonian exile and after the Babylonian exile was they'd either lost a lot of their holy books that had been destroyed or they'd only ever been carried in the oral tradition. They start writing them all down again but they don't just write them down from memory they weave things into them so that's when the angel the angels start becoming and some more. of the Babylonian myths go in don't indeed they? indeed yes yeah. so they, they, they borrow a lot from that and then what you get coming out of the Babylonian exile because because what the Jews what the Jews are asking themselves at that time is you know so we, we were meant to be the chosen people God was on our side we were always going to win how have we managed to lose and you know it must be it must be we've lost our connection the lines dropped somehow with God we've got to kind of work out how to get that back and so they come out of the Babylonian exile, and we're talking about, you know, four or five hundred years now, but a whole series of defeats building up to the Roman occupation. Um, they keep losing all the time. They never, they never really do very well. And the people who take, take, take them over or who colonise them try and destroy their beliefs. So they, tr- they start trying to think of a different way to get to God. And one of the ideas they come up with is by going through the angels. And that's what leads us to having our named angels. Because all those shadowy figures, uh, they do have some forms. You've described Isaiah and the six, the, the, the six-winged seraphs. But those early ones are very shadowy. And suddenly you start getting in the book of Daniel, which is one of the latest books of the Old Testament, you get Michael and Gabriel. Michael the warrior, Gabriel a bit kind of kinder. And um, not the warriors aren't kind. Then you get the book of Tobit as well, where you have the story of Raphael, which is much more, it's a lovely story. It's unlike any other other uh, biblical book, really. It feels a bit it feels a bit like a kind of novel. But Raphael, uh, Raphael's kind of, I, mean, I think Michael is the sort of fighty one yeah. in the battlefield, so yes. angel. And then Raphael's sort of the healer, isn't he? He's Raphael's the healer. Up, you know. And Gabriel, Gabriel's always, Gabriel's a bit kind of pious, I always think, in those ones, and, and not massively attractive. But that may be from looking at too many enunciation. Um, <laughs> not unattractive in the sense of hideous to look at. But the enunciation um, did a lot for his stock. Exactly, the most popular uh, thing of the of the thing. Raphael's the one I, I I'm always drawn to. Really, just I love that that kind of topic story. And so they're building up these named angels that that we know about. So they're they're two key books. The other really really key book in all of this. And actually, I I, I um doing a talk in a few days' time at Jewish Book Week and I was talking to, to some of the people there about Daniel Tobit and the Book of Enoch, which of course is a, is a Jewish book and very little known, certainly amongst the, the Jews who are organising a Jewish Book Week. But it's a wonderful, I mean completely bonkers book. But it gets book more so, doesn't it? By, by three Enoch, he's turned into yes. the Metatron. Yeah, which absolutely. Like absolutely. From... And that, yes, and so yes, there are three books of Enoch at least <laughs> and only in the Ethiopian, is it the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, is it canonical uh, kind of Enoch? <laughs> 
But so, so the, in in those late books of the Old Testament, the uh, in Jewish books, the Russian to three three angels, and then when you got into the New Testament, and indeed for two thousand years, Christianity has been so parsimonious with its angels; it only really likes there to be three. Sometimes it lets Uriel, if that's the right way to say it, in. But in the Book of Enoch, you've just got thousands of them. I mean, every time, so Enoch is the patriarch, biblical patriarch, at the very very beginning of um, the Book of Genesis. Genesis. Who it says he walked. Did it say he walked? To heaven, but anyway, the, the belief was always that he was one of the very few people in heaven. So the writers of the Book of Enoch picked up this idea, and he goes on this wonderful odyssey. It's like a kind of Michael Palin TV program um, around the seven hills of heaven, meeting all sorts of different angels, and you just bring this complete flood of angels, including the fallen angels, including the devil story. Although it's not quite the devil story in in, in the first Book of Enoch. So Enoch brings in all, all of these kind of influences and this whole apocalyptic narrative, which is all about. The, the, the defeated Jews, the Jews who feel that God has abandoned them, believing that these angels will come down with God and it'll be the door, it'll be the day of judgment and the, the dawn of the kingdom of God on earth and all of these things. They're born up in all of that. And if you think of the distance that's been travelled between that and those really shadowy people at the beginning of the, of the Old Testament, we didn't quite, you didn't quite know what they were really. You had no description. Of them. They're, they're, they're real, uh, I was going to say flesh and blood, but uh, that's a bit Thomas Aquinas. So that, that's the kind of journey you go on there. And then, of course, one of the places that angels always appear in the Bible are at times of change. So, you know, you then go into Christianity and who is it who announces the birth of Jesus but Gabriel? Or who is it who brings Allah's message to Muhammad in his cave? It's Jibril, Gabriel again. So, uh, angels become almost the kind of change points in all of these in all of these stories. And one of the things, I mean, it's low-minded of me, but this... Okay, yes, sorry, I think this, I was getting a bit high-minded wings, then, wasn't I? <laughs> this wings business, because um, they've got six in Isaiah, and when, I mean, I think they've got four in Ezekiel, and they've got, I think the angel of death is said to have 12, and when, I think Jibril has, how many has he got? He got he's got 600. Yes. And when Enoch becomes, how many is he? Oh, he's got 72 when he becomes Metatron. Gosh, you've got very good notes there. Well, it's the sort of thing I was just like, okay, because I, I was very curious as to when they settle into this, particularly at least in the Christian West, the archetypal format we've got now, where it's a kind of white robe, ordinarily. Two, two, wing two wings. Two wings, <laughs> only two wings, you know, maybe a halo if they're, if they're lucky. When How did that? Well, there is a technical difficulty, isn't it? If you think of kind of 72 wings, where you'd fit them all. Because, I mean, those, those Seraphs and Isaiah and the depictions, well, the reason, they the struggle slightly with the that, six yes, on, yeah. on, on, don't they? And there's that amazing um, Francis of Assisi, who has his vision where the paintings of it are extraordinary, where Christ is on the cross and the angel wings sort of work to encapsulate the cross with two little ones at the bottom and all of that. <laughs> the wings uh, come really in Christian... I mean, obviously... Judaism not so keen on, on, on depictions, but the depictions and th- that very standard idea that we have comes with Christianity and comes around the 3rd or 4th century. So some of the very early Christian depictions that we have, there's, a, there's an angel Gabriel in one of the catacombs in the 2nd or 3rd century, has no wings. And the first that you really see uh, of angels with wings in white togas, um, as our children now are still at uh, nativity plays, you see that in the uh, Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, one of the big basilicas in Rome, 
where there's a nativity scene in mosaics. That's extraordinary. And the angels are exactly angels as we would see them. They are in white robes, a little bit of gold trimming, and uh, they're looking very sweet, and they have kind of big wings, and they have halos to distinguish them from humans, which, of course, is always the point. Angels aren't... You're taking the wings, we've given it away, but... Well, they obviously just... uh, (laughs) Belt and and braces, wings and halo in in all of that. We lose our halos, don't we? You lose the halos in the the Renaissance. Uh, Fra Angelica was really the last person, because the other Renaissance painters were much keener that angels interacted. They felt our pain in a sense. So to give them a to give them a kind of halo distanced themselves. Yeah. So really he was the he was the very last one it kind of got in the way. But I'm skipping ahead to the Renaissance I can see. Yes, yeah, so no no I was gonna say the the relationship, you know, you say distinguishing them from humans, but their relationship with humans seems to be one of the you know, shifting aspects always, of this book. Shifting, that yeah. They're prior to us in the creation in most of the accounts of things, but Certainly, I think in the Islamic tradition, where they, you know there are also angels, doesn't an, an angel get cast down because he refuses to worship humans? Yes. And yes. there's a sense that you know sometimes they're above us in the hierarchy, sometimes they're below us. They get demoted when Jesus comes along. Yes. At least in Western theology. And when the saints come along, they, they and when the Virgin Mary cult rises, they, each time they kind of push slightly down down the kind of the ladder. I mean, one of the great. I mean. There's that, there's that famous remark that people attribute to Thomas Aquinas about angels dancing on pinheads to say, you know, about sort of boring, tedious, irrelevant detail. And some of the debates that they have in the, in, in the world of angelology can seem rather... Thomas Aquinas didn't say that, by the way, but he said it's something... It's disappointing to see that debunked. He said it? something quite similar in some ways. He could almost have said it, but he didn't. But they get very, very worried about where angels come in the creation story. Particularly in Christianity, we're very, very keen on calibrating what happens on various days. And, of course, nowhere are angels mentioned. So St. Augustine in the 4th, 3rd, 4th century, his great idea is is that moment when God says, let there be light. That was, he really meant angels as well, because angels are made up of light. So what he was very keen to do was to get them in before Adam and Eve came along. So they were... Wasn't Augustine who maintained they were also condensed air, was it? No, no, that's Thomas Aquinas. No, that was Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas had this. uh, So Thomas Aquinas, so Augustine said that they uh, they were light. And then Thomas Aquinas, kind of 12th, 13th century, the direction of travel was from the very early church when angels were seen as very human. And partly that was because people felt that when they were being persecuted and martyred, they, they, they kind of wanted the angels around them, again, sharing their pain, to keep using that terrible phrase. And then as Christianity became the established religion in the 4th, 5th century and went forward, the move was very, very much towards making angels kind of celestial beings only. And if you, you have that um, that hierarchy of angels it's there very slightly in the book of Enoch and it's it's touched on very briefly by St Paul who didn't really like angels very much and then you get this extraordinarily named man called Pseudo-Dionysus and we don't actually know what he was called 5th century probably monk and what people did then was that they they borrowed names of biblical characters because it made them sound better and I think Dionysus was a judge in one of the in one of the New Testament accounts I can't quite remember which one and because he wasn't Dionysus he was Pseudo-Dionysus anyway so Di- Pseudo-Dionysus let's call him that's quite hard to say, isn't it? So he dropped the hierarchy. He dropped the hierarchy, yes. And, but what he did was he put seven... It's a nine-stage nine hierarchy. He put seven of the nine stages up in heaven, and they were all gathered around God, looking onto the face of God, which, apart from Jacob, when he wrestles with the angel, is something we, we never really manage. And he puts only two of them down down near us, which, oddly, are the ones that we know, the angels and the archangels are down yes, there. Yes, the rank and file. Yeah, they, they really are. They are the kind of... Yeah, absolutely. So they're down there. But so, so in the hymn, Thrones and Dominations, is indeed, all, all, all of those yeah. ones. Yeah. 
ones, yes. And so the idea became to kind of move, move them away from, from Earth, move them away from earthly things, which, of course, again, contradicts where we are now, where everyone thinks they're all hovering around all the time as guardian angels as well. So it, it moves. It is constantly moving. So they, 5th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 9th, whatever, trying to count backwards there. And he uh, puts seraphim on top, doesn't he? Is that is, right? Is it, the, it is the seraphim, isn't it? Yes, it is the seraphim. And then cherub, yeah, cherubim and, one down, and, but I couldn't... And they are, and then, yeah. and then that, that, I suppose because they've got more wings, they can push through, okay. through more into the front row. So that isn't, uh, that isn't what he says. I'm sorry, I've just... I've just I've, well, it's <laughs> right wing. Um, uh, who knows what, why that's about. But then when you when you move forward, so Aquinas very much kept that. Yes, we were talking about compressed air, weren't we? I mean, what a bizarre thing to be talking about. So um, Aquinas very much believed that they were pure spirit, not light, but pure spirit. But that we could see them sometimes. I and mean, he spent years puzzling over this. He was an incredibly clever man. So it shows how seriously it was taken. And the reason it was taken seriously, we should just add, is because Aquinas believed that by understanding angels, you could understand the working of the cosmos. So in a sense, he approached it from a scientific point of view. I was going to say, view. you make a good, uh, sort of robust and spirited defence of Aquinas, yes. saying, you know, this wasn't just kind of it, well, crazy stuff. Yeah. This was actually him he was doing science. He was trying, exactly. He was a scientist in the same way that anthropologists would, will, will study monkeys to understand why we. We are as we are. Um, Aquinas of studying angels to understand the kind of working why the planets moved and all of those things. So he did it for a good reason. But anyway, he so he said on those rare occasions when we were allowed to see them, it was because they were made up of compressed air, which made me think of a whoopee cushion really, <laughs> in, in some way. So he came up with 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 that idea. But so that was kind of a medieval period. Move on to the Renaissance, and the Renaissance changed that that relationship between humans and angels again, and they make angels very 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 human and make them very, very domestic. So if you think, for instance, about that very, very famous Frangelico picture of the, of the Annunciation with Mary and uh, Gabriel under a sort of vaulted loggia, however you pronounce it, uh, sitting there, they are almost identical. They both have their arms crossed and they're both sitting forward towards each other. Very similar expressions on the face. The only difference being, of course, that the, the angel has wings. Which is quite a big difference, but and you see that repeatedly through Renaissance painting, and and lots of Renaissance work wasn't just in churches and convents and monasteries; it was in people's houses and palaces and palaces and you know non-religious buildings in that sense. So it was the real domestication of, of angels and making them very very human. But also, nowadays, we, you know, when one t- to talk colloquially of you know cherubs. You, you, the, your mental image is those sort of little fat Renaissance beauties. Yep. How did that come about? Where did that sort of almost kitschy, you know, little little babies with wings thing? Because you know, the, there's no little kitschy babies in Isaiah. You know, they, they're not no, messing no, around. They're, they're, you know, no, these are terrifying, awe-inspiring no, absolutely, creatures. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, that came about through an interest that the early church had. So the early church didn't live in the catacombs in Rome when it was being persecuted, but it used the catacombs as a place of as a place of refuge and where they would have their liturgies. And in the catacombs and also in, in uh in Roman cemeteries, you would have these great sarcophagi where what the Romans did particularly was they, if their children died, they'd have a carved sarcophagi uh, where they would have little putti, kind of ch- child gods, winged creatures there. So spiritelli in, in Greek and uh, cupids as well. So those ideas were there. Kind and of pagan influence. Pa- ab- absolutely, absolutely a pagan influence. And it comes and goes and comes and goes in Christianity. And then it's really in the Renaissance, Donatello in particular, Raphael, those two kind of, those two naughty angels, which is the most popular 
popular uh, image of angels of all time, apparently. They pick up on those ideas. So the Renaissance, in a sense, did angels in two sizes. It did the full-life ones, who are as big as the human beings they were with, and it did the kind of smaller versions. And that's where you start getting your uh, your musical angels. As um, It's a Donatello, isn't it, in a wooden, um, a bronze carving, I think it's in a church in Padua, of them playing the lyre and, all, and, and, and different instruments and flutes. They, they come then, so he introduces all, all those, those sort of ideas. One of the things the uh, Catholic Church decided at the Council of Trent after the Reformation was one of, the, one of the reasons that it had gone wrong. I mean, clearly there were many reasons why it had gone wrong, but they decided to blame artists for um, introducing ideas that were non-canonical. So the, uh, what you get after the Counter-Reformation, uh, in, in Baroque art particularly, is you get these mighty, kind of powerful, but very, very orthodox and slightly tedious angels in lots of ways, because the Church had worried that angels had allowed people the use of angels in renaissance painting had sort of allowed people to try and make up their own minds about what was right and what was wrong and they weren't having that anymore they were going to be told what was right or wrong which is uh, which is quite a, a, an interesting and then and you start losing your chairs and but back they come they, again backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards they keep coming and i mean it's obviously art has been important in the driving forward of our ideas about angels but forward or backwards sometimes but the you know, there, there are a couple of sort of big names in, on the literary side as well. I mean, you know, sort of Milton imagined angels more fully, maybe, than any writer of sort of fiction or the equivalent before. How important is his kind of image of angels to us now? I mean, how much has, have Milton's angels kind of come down to us, do you think? The, the most important bit of, of Milton's angels... I would say it's, it's, it's the fallen angel story, the, the devil, and um, uh, and the, the the whole story around that. He really looks into the kind of because Christianity has never been very very clear about why why the, why the angels fell, and it's meant it's meant to be pride, it's meant to be sort of envy of God or whatever. They've used all sorts. Well, there was of lust at one point, wasn't there? The, yes, the, the daughters of Earth. And... There's that line in in, yeah. in Genesis chapter six. I'm sounding very good now. I'm moving my Bible over to get there. It's in chapter six. It's the thing about they 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 come down to Earth and and get involved with uh, daughters of Earth and give birth to a, a, a race of giants in Nephilim. there. And that that's that's what the whole the whole devil story is based on I mean if you think how powerful it is in, in kind of um, in kind of Western culture even now it's a little bit like angels in a way lots of people who you know would never darken the doors of a church have no interest in religion at all will happily use ideas of angels and uh, sorry happily use ideas of devil the devil as well to, to condemn people they, they perceive of as evil so that I think I think if Milton gave us anything the person I think is most extraordinary is William Blake there's a William Blake um, illustration angels on the in <laughs> indeed from the age of eight he's yeah. seen, he is seeing angels and it's all Almost in his writings all the time, as if he lives in this. It wasn't like he was trying to kind of play with the ideas of religion or reform religion or or modified. It. it was like he kind of created a whole new religion, a whole new way of looking at the world. He just saw angels everywhere in the, in the most everyday thing. I mean, it, it, it is, it is, uh, it is stunning. Of course, he was influenced. People debate how much he was influenced, but influenced by Swedenborg, who is the other person who is is, is very yeah. important in this story as well, and, and tends to get slightly overlooked now. It was Swedenborg who made angels. I mean, I talked about the Renaissance making them domesticated, but it was Swedenborg who made them like kind of um, like us, really. That 
that we would somehow die and then we'd just carry on as before, except for we might have it's a couple of... This vision of heaven is, yeah, is quite... it's very um, gingham tablecloth, yeah, really. It's, it's all, get rid of the people I don't like very much and everyone else can be in there and it'll all be fine. And so he has that very odd idea, doesn't he, Swedenborg, about about husbands and wives. And I'm trying to remember what it is, but it's a bit like wife swapping. It's a bit like sort of keys in a dish when you get there. Well, perhaps he was kind of playing to the crowd. <laughs> now, you do mention that there's a... An Islamic tradition of angels as well that feeds in it. They share Jibral. Yes. Um, Jibril, Jibral? Jibril. 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 Mikhail. But I was intrigued that when you describe various of the angels in the Muslim tradition, they often seem to come in pairs. Yes. You've got this idea of a, not just a guardian angel, but a recording angel. Yes. That there's one, before, one in front of you, one, one in behind, behind you. So one's which, got your back and the other yes, one's checking your checking up. staying in line. Which is a bit carrot and stick, isn't it? I mean, it kind of works for human nature. Yeah. And I suppose what you also have to think about, and I'm really, I'm not saying this in an irreligious way, but I think a lot of these ideas haven't come come about by accident in, in some ways. They come about because they're very... Fi- the reason that we still are interested in angels is because they're very finely tuned to kind of human nature and human wants. And I think where Islam has that, particularly with those recording angels, is is a sense... That, that in organised religion, there's a very, very strong sense, isn't there, of people being judged and people being, being held to account against different things. So you have that there with your recording angels. But then you also have the other side of that, the kind of positive side. Of it. I mean, it, it, it may be why, amongst all these kind of freelance angel fanciers, as one might call them nowadays, you don't come across many ex-Muslims. They all tend to be people who've grown up in it or know the Christian tradition. So perhaps Islam, which really... I'm always, I always feel nervous of saying this, which, which is a, a, a much bigger thing. I mean, there's such a powerful carryover from Judaism and, Christia, and Christianity, particularly from Judaism in Islam, if you look at that, and those ideas of angels that, that, that they have there are very, very redolent of some of those, the Jewish ideas of angels as well. So they borrowed them, but they did, they did tweak them, as you say, and, and the kind of pairing of angels is quite, is quite interesting. Yes, you also men- mentioned two Islamic angels called Munkar and Nakir, Munkar and Nakir, who are, if I, if I read you right, they've got enormous hammers, and if you get on the wrong side of them, you'll be sort of hammered to bits by them for the rest yes. of eternity which isn't, every day which, except which, on which Friday. Is, which isn't our cosy... Our co- it's, yes, but, it's, yeah. it's the judgment, isn't it? It's the whole, the whole angels, angels part in the, in the process of final judgment. Yes, it's pretty, pretty gruesome and ghastly. And actually, one of the things you discover when you, when you're, as you're going through the, the history of angels is how many of them... Are, you talked about the seraph already, which would have been terrifying... You really wouldn't have wanted to meet either of them on a, on, on your last night or your dark night or dark night either, and we've we've sort of evolved in in kind of modern times to these very cosy angels to the the kind of Christmas card angels, which I suppose you know the, the most popular Christmas card angel are the kind of Burne Jones ones and the pre-Raphaelite ones, and we were talking about forward and backward when you said that before. It made me think about them because I mean, in many ways, the pre-Raphaelites were backward-looking um, with with the, the sort of images that they've left us with, which we get on our Christmas cards and often they're angels but in one sense they were progressive in that in terms of the depiction of angels 
the, the church teaching has always been that they are without gender, which which may be something to do with the church's hang up about the hangs up, hang ups about those hangs up, hang up anyway, about those things. But certainly, what you got from the eleventh and twelfth century onwards uh, around the cult of Mary, where angels were slightly relegated and angels were her attendants, was that angels couldn't be too obviously male. So. First millennium of the church, Michael was the archetypal angel, always in battle gear, always with a sword, always kind of killing people, slaying people, doing all of those things. The, the next 500 years, you, angels were much more, certainly uh, practically androgynous. But what they wanted to do was to take away that male aspect, particularly, I've already said about the Annunciation being the kind of the favourite subject of the Renaissance. It was considered unseemly that the, the angel Gabriel could appear in any way male, in, the, in those situations, because there might be a slight question about the paternity had he been hanging around at that, that kind of moment, to put it crudely. So they really, um, if you look at all depictions of Gabriel at that stage, Gabriel is always pretty pretty um, female, but it, it, it was still left hanging around. But what the pre-Raphaelites did was they unambiguously turned angels into women. So the pre-Raphaelite angels are nearly always women. Um, Burne Jones used one particular sister, didn't he? His name I've slightly forgotten. But they are they're women. And also, they move away from that sort of archetypal angel kind of blonde-haired kind of golden and you have these rather long dark-haired kind of lush rather sensuous angels as well so that's another another change in the depiction I just love the way in the story that it's always changing I mean often they're going back to old ideas there's not an awful lot that's new but but it's it is it is just fascinating and to see how those ideas resonate. One of the um, the bits of research I did for the book was I went to watch uh, a woman called Lorna Byrne did a huge event here in London. Uh, she's enormously popular. She wrote a book called Angels in My Hair, which is all about how she's always been able to see guardian angels. And the temptation is to think that, it's, that she's either a bit bonkers or she is somehow kind of telling people what they want to hear and making a business. I've met her, I've spent time with her. She She's utterly sincere in, in what she thinks. But when she describes what, she's, what she thinks she can see, and I don't know whether she can or not, when she describes that, it's, it's, it's almost like she's picking through an art history, picking through volume after volume of art history books. She's bringing all these ideas forward. The most extraordinary thing about her, I went to this event that she did at um, Friends House, the, the huge Quaker place in North London, about 800 people in the audience. So she did the kind of talking bit. And then at the end when it was time to go, almost the entire audience waited to meet her. And what they wanted was they didn't want her to bless them. I mean, if I'd queued up, I, wouldn't, I would have wanted to know what my guardian angel looks like, because you can see everyone's guardian angel. It'd be good to know, wouldn't it? Yeah. But they weren't asking that. All they wanted was, and she was tiny, and most of them were quite tall, was that she just hugged each one of them. She put her arms round, round their neck. And they wanted to know that other people believed, had those, those feelings, that had felt that, that connection and that she, in a sense, reinforced their belief that there was something other in the world, about in the world, and it was a good and benign thing. It was, an extraordinary, it was extraordinary watching it. It's one of those things that never gets written about and never gets publicised. I mean, there's too many other things going on at the moment. But it's the other side of, 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 of things that are going on in the world. It's also, I imagine, how people deal with all the things that are going on in the world. And when we're not talking about a tiny minority. These are very, very large numbers of people. Well, one in three, the figure that you quoted. I mean, one in ten people think they've seen angels. Well... Perhaps they have. If anyone out there is an angel, please write in. We need you. Peter Stanford, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. 
You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.